agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Two weeks after the 2020 elections now, we have a much clearer picture of where things stand. Joe Biden has won the presidential election. President Trump seems to be, well, at least a little further down the road to accepting that uh, regardless of what he thinks about the outcome, he probably won't be in the Oval Office after January 20th. And Democrats will have a small majority in the House of Representatives and the balance of power in the Senate depends well, on the outcome of two special elections in Georgia to be held on January 5th. Now, if the Democrats win both of those elections in a state that it looks like Joe Biden will have narrowly carried, the Senate will be split 50-50, giving Democrats effective, if tenuous, control with Vice President Harris's tie-breaking vote. So we're going to start today with those presidential elections, talking about who you think will win and how tight you see these races as being. And I thought we would start today with Faith, because Faith, you seem to be the only one in our group here who thinks that the Democrats are likely to pick up even one of those Senate seats. And in part, you made the argument that you felt that uh, Loeffler isn't an actual incumbent. So I was hoping you could start us off by talking about that. Yeah, so I don't know if I fully believe that Loeffler will lose. Um, you asked later on in the paper what we seem optimistic about. And honestly, I felt why not mix it up and try to make the case for um, Warnick. But I mean, I think maybe the fact that Kelly isn't, um, Kelly Loeffler isn't a real incumbent. She was rather actually appointed um, by Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, to replace, um, I forget his name, who actually stepped down in 2019. I think might actually had some pull because you always say, incumbents win incumbents usually tend to win as was actually seen in this election a lot i think that maybe might give warnick a boost especially because um loffler wouldn't have been running the last time she won't have as much name recognition which maybe might be have um something that could give warnick the upper hand and one one thing and faith i'm sure you were thinking about this one thing i seem to do in just about every class is i pull out that chart of incumbent re-election rates and it's almost always as you say where incumbents always or not always but win an awfully large percentage of the time. But I thought that was an interesting point you made about uh, about Loeffler not having actually won a previous election, but being, appoint, uh, being appointed, making her a slightly different sort of not quite real incumbent in that sense. So does anyone else have any any belief that at least there's a reasonable chance that the Democrats could pick up one or both of these seats? Or is it almost a foregone conclusion that it's going to be two Republican wins in Georgia. Uh, let's move on to Noah. Um, so I, in my paper, I really was like, I actually think these races are potential toss ups, like, cause I understand like as Georgia has been a red state in the past, like there is that precedent, like obviously they might go red again, but I think we have um, the potential to um, flip those seats to Democrats. And I think the reason being is Stacey Abrams. I mean, like before the election, um, before the presidential election, she got 800,000, around 800,000 people registered to vote. And they actually showed up to the polls, causing Biden to win Georgia for the first time since 1992, I think, if I remember correctly. And so I could see potentially again that we might have a... I. 
I'm thinking these races are going to be very close as that we are going to probably have recounts again because how close they might be. And I remember recently seeing her and um, tweet something about that. They already had 600,000 people request mail-in ballots for this runoff election. And they're also trying to get young people to register to vote if they couldn't vote in the presidential election, that they can vote in this one. So, I mean, they're making a huge effort to win these seats. But obviously, the Republicans aren't going to go out without a fight. Doc? Uh, I've been kind of following this so long after the fact. I, I said in my paper that I believe the Republicans had, had take this, but the way that like Pelosi and Schumer are looking at it as a total uh, this is a total United States things we need these people in here so we control the Senate but then there's the people that saying these people are supposed to represent Georgia and do what they need to do for the people of Georgia, not necessarily swing the whole Senate or the Democrats and to make sure they have a, a, a majority that they can rule the United States. It's, it's really interesting. Also, uh, I just read this morning where there are people from California who are trying to become residents of Georgia so they can vote in this election. I mean, this is really getting to be knocked down, drag out. Uh, there's another thing I was thinking about. People who weren't old enough to vote in the general election who might go across the line and be able to vote in it in this election. I don't know, you know, in my mind, I don't know if that's legal or not. If you didn't vote the first time, why should you be able to vote the second time? And yeah, to, to that point, it is, it is in fact, it is in fact legal because it's a, it's a different, it's a different election. And so that one thing that can't be done is the rules can't be changed between elections, but as long as they, they meet those requirements under Georgia law by before that election, then they actually are able. I don't, I hadn't heard about the California thing. That's interesting though. I think that would probably be very difficult to, to pull off given Georgia's laws on that, but, but we shall see. But you, you make, a very doc makes a very good point about the nationalization of Senate elections and even House election. And we're seeing this in very stark detail here in this election because everyone knows that control of the Senate is, in fact, up for grabs. But of course, these folks, as Doc points out, are also supposed to represent the, the residents of Georgia and not just be sort of a vote for Republican or Democratic control. And that's a great point. Let's move on to uh, Skyler. I agree with Noah. Uh, do I agree with both Noah and Faith? I'm I'm trying to be optimistic, but although that the chances of Democrats taking these two special election seats in Georgia are not incredibly high, I just I feel that within recent years we've seen Georgia become more of a purple state rather than a solid red state. So I truly didn't think I'd see Georgia go this purple kind of route uh 
in my college years, I was expecting like seeing Texas and Florida and Georgia, like all of those like really well-known red states not getting to this point for a couple more years. So I feel like we could have some some faith uh, in Democrats potentially winning these special elections on January 5th. And going off of what Doc said about uh, voter voters being allowed to vote in this election, but they couldn't vote in the previous election. I know Georgia has been pushing really hard for uh, individuals who are going to be 18 before January uh, 5th, I believe. Yes, it's the day of the election. As long as you're 18 before the day of the election, you're allowed to vote in this special election. And um, I think that them pushing for all of these fresh new young voters might actually be their saving their saving chance because Stacey Abrams started like a collation of like voter registration for this uh, for the general election and for the president and she garnered uh upwards of almost a million new voters for democrats and that's how Joe Biden successfully like slid into the Georgia winning margin um, Olivia. So um, Stacey Abrams is amazing. And I 100% think that um, some of her efforts and, and the people that she has, you know, mobilized and gotten registered and um, prepared to vote will still turn out in January. Um, and she's definitely still going to have an impact in favor of the Democrats. But um, as we've seen with the Trump presidency um, and Trump's kind of style of campaigning, um, fear is probably the best motivator to get people to go out and vote Um, and also um, like rage. And we've seen a lot of like, you know, the Trump administration and um, well, both parties really kind of stirring up like rage against the other party um, to motivate people to vote. And Um, The difference between Republican voters and Democratic voters in Georgia right now is that, um, you know, the Democratic voters are feeling like this high of like, you know, we we our state went blue and um, Biden's going to be the president and Trump's going to be gone. And I feel like they might become some of them might become a little bit complacent and not feel as motivated to go out and vote in January because they kind of got like their main goal accomplished, Um, whereas the Trump supporters are going to be angry that their state went blue and that their president that, you know, they've they've desperately wanted to win is not going to be in office for the next four years. Um, And they're going to be way more motivated than the Democrats to go out and vote because um, they have so much more to lose. And I know there's going to be a ton of um, a ton of ads and and campaigning from the right um, about how if the Democrats take control, we're going to become an entirely socialist regime. And there's just going to be a ton of fear mongering, um, which is going to be um, you know, a huge motivational factor for the Republicans to go out and vote so that at least if Trump lost, they still aren't going to be under like an entirely democratic rule. Um, so I just think I, I just think we're going to have a bigger turnout of Republican voters, which is ultimately going to lead to the two Republican candidates winning. Alan. Yeah, I agree with Olivia. I think the Republicans are winning the messaging more, which I mean, it's kind of silly because it's going to be a 50 50 spent. Senate split and let's not act like Joe Manchin's going to like repeal the um, filibuster or allow them to stack the court. But um, I think to put it into statistical terms, the Remington Research Group, which is a right leaning um, polling firm, 
so like for pre- for a prerequisite, um, they're saying Purdue is leading by four percentage points right now, and Loughner is re- leading by one. And while that's right leaning, I believe it might be a little bit more accurate given how polls have kind of undercounted right leaning voters lately. And the reason I think we'll probably end up seeing both of them win is because I don't imagine Republicans are going to split ticket vote for just Purdue and then not Loughner, even though she's been accused of like insider trading or something. I think it's probably going to be. She's going to run in on Purdue's coattails, essentially. All right. Let's move on to the president, well, not the presidential election, but the, the wake of the presidential election, because as I said in the intro, it, it looks like even if President Trump and some of his top allies uh, keep on pressing claims of voter fraud and the election was incorrectly incorrectly decided, it seems fairly certain, I would say, that on that on January 20th, Joe Biden is going to be sworn in as the next president. And so if you were advising Joe Biden, uh, what would you tell him should be his top priority? When I asked you guys this question, the number one thing that was mentioned was climate change. And so let, let's start there. More people mention that than anyone else. Why do you think that uh, climate change should be uh, aside from the pandemic, I should point out, should be a top priority of a new Biden administration. Olivia. Um, Right now, I think climate change is we're we're just seeing like we're physically seeing the effects of it in um, America, but also around the world um, in a more glaringly obvious way than than probably ever before because um, of the fires that have been raging in California. you know, just in, domestically in California, but, you know, in other parts of the world as well, um, that we can't seem to get under control. And we know that that is a result of um, both raising temp- rising temperatures, but also from um, lengthy periods of drought and drier conditions um, that are, you know, and, and not only is that destroying uh, people's homes, people are losing their homes and being uprooted and um, having to start over, um, but also it's it's destroying the habitat of wildlife. And we're, we're going to see populations going endangered and extinct um, if, if their habitats keep being destroyed. Um, so that's a major problem. But on top of that, um, we're also having... Um, record-breaking numbers of tropical storms, um, which is also due to rising temperatures um, and and uh, trop- um, on the coastline, um, and and we're seeing the devastating effects of that. Again, that is literally destroying people's homes um, and their livelihoods, and putting people in danger and killing people. So um, I just think with with those two things happening um, in the United States, it should be a major cause for concern and a focal point um, as far as his agenda goes. Another issue that a number of people mentioned just about as often was, uh, I could call it uh, generally police or criminal justice reform. Uh, And so why would you say that that is another key issue that a Biden administration should make a top priority in 2021? Doc. Uh, I know I've said this before, but uh, a lot of my family's in law enforcement. My son was a police officer for 30 years. His wife was a police officer. My grandson's a police officer. And when you talk to them, they will tell you the legal system is geared to help the criminal, not 
to help the innocent victims of the criminal are the law enforcement agencies. As soon as you get some, I'll try not to say that, as soon as you get someone off the street, some liberal judge will go, oh, you poor thing, and put them right back on on the street again. Uh, I just read where I think Washington, a city in Washington, has just uh, annihilated the laws of uh, they're not going to they're not going to convict anybody of any misdemeanors. So these people can shoplift at will. They can do whatever they want at will. Uh, it it is just uh, it is just ridiculous. I mean, uh, law enforcement is getting uh, beat up about the side of the head for. Very little, the very few people that are really problems in a law enforcement business. Okay, and I'm, while I'm not familiar with uh, the Washington case you said, I do know that in the most recent elections, Oregon actually decriminalized uh, personal use possession of just about all, just about all recreational drugs, and uh, there actually is something that has a certain amount of bipartisan support. Uh, let's see. Next, Olivia. So. Um, one of the, I guess as far as why this should be a top priority to Biden um, is number one, because um, so the criminal justice system uh, disproportionately harms uh, people of color. And it has been literally set up that way. The police force was literally designed um, to act as slave catchers. That's literally why it was created. Um, and then we've seen like the war on drugs declared um, specifically to more harshly punish um, minority communities and poor communities who were using, for example, like crack cocaine versus other types of cocaine that they knew that um, were more expensive. So therefore, um, uh, white and more affluent communities would use those. So they were less harshly punished. Um, and we've just, you know, the criminal justice system has always systemically um, oppressed people of color and and been less less oppressive on on white and more affluent communities. Um, it's the same with the fact that, you know, you, you have to post bail. And, you know, if you are someone who's wealthy and you commit the same crime as someone who is uh, living in poverty, um, you're going to get out of jail a lot more quickly than the person who doesn't have the money to post bail. And they, they have to sit in the jail cell just because they don't have the money to pay to get out, even though they committed the same crime. So, um, the reason that it's, it should be so important to Joe Biden is because um, black communities in the United States really rallied against him and helped him flip um, a few of the, the states that were kind of on the on the edge, the, the swing states um, flipped in Joe Biden's favor, predominantly because of black voters. Um, we saw this in Georgia with Stacey Abrams um, mobilizing a lot of black voters, especially in uh, states or in um, county, uh, cities like Atlanta. Um, and. I think the last time I saw was that Joe Biden got 87% of the black vote and he's made all these promises and he um, joined the movement for Black Lives Matter. He attended some of the protests. And again, that's another thing that's current and going on right now is that we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement um, spread to all 50 of the states. Um, so I think it's just, it's a very um, current issue and it's, it's a focal point in the media and it's a focal point in our lives. And um, Joe Biden has made a lot of promises to voters who turned out um, in his favor and helped him win. And I think he owes it to especially his um, black voters who went out to support him to um, make change that's going to help them. 
Skyler. The, the criminal justice system definitely does put an advantage for some criminals. Those criminals being white. If you're white, you're pretty much guaranteed a lighter, a lighter sentence than if you committed the crime that a person of color did. They are more than likely going to be punished harsher, be given a higher bail uh, price that they have to pay because a joke that I've been seeing amongst uh, white people on like social media that I have personally seen, they've been calling it a charge, not a crime. That's why it's called a charge, not a crime. Um, I feel like this this country is truly dependent on how police brutality has ravaged our country. It's become more and more frequent and it's becoming more acceptable with the current administration. They have not necessarily cut like I can't think of the word um, disapprove of the police brutality erupting across the country. And Trump hasn't explicitly said that this is a problem that we need to focus on it, but Joe Biden has. And we, as, as a young white voter, I can't say that young white voters elected Joe Biden. I truly can't. It was the young black youth that elected Joe Biden. And we should we should truly be grateful to the people of color that helped bring this election around because they are the sole reason why Joe Biden has won in so many of those key swing states. And I feel like they should be listened to and they should like, they shouldn't be villainized simply because of the tone of their skin. And it's an incredibly pressing issue that has been in the United States for the entirety of its existence. Okay, Olivia. Um, I also just wanted to add that Biden has said multiple times that what uh, motivated him and incentivized him to run for president was uh, mainly Trump's statement um, about on Charlottesville, on the violence that erupted in Charlottesville, um, starting with a white supremacist group um, when Trump said that there were good people on both sides. Um, and so Biden has kind of run um, since the beginning of him announcing his his uh, presidential bid on, you know, Trump is a racist candidate. And we we he said in one of the debates that, you know, we've all we've never achieved racial equity in the country, but we've also never turned our backs on it and started moving backward until Trump, until Trump's presidency. Um, and so I think, you know, Biden has just kind of run on this like you know, Trump is a problem. Trump is inciting racism. Trump is enabling racism and um, systemic racism in the country. And I want to, as president, I want to make progress and make sure that we never turn our backs on people of color again. And, you know, I think one of the main ways that he can actually keep that promise and show that he, he wants to make substantial change that will, um, that will, I guess, kind of combat the issue of systemic racism um, is to start with the criminal with criminal justice reform. And also, like I meant to add earlier, um, like what Skylar was saying with police brutality, um, Biden has actually said in the debates that um, he plans on not defunding the, uh, not defunding the police force, but actually pouring more funds into making sure that officers, when they go to a scene, are assisted by someone who has expertise in um, in psychology um, and and di uh, dismantling a situation. 
people with medical expertise because we've seen that the police are just not trained well enough um, to know how to de-escalate a situation in a lot of cases and that ends up leading to violence or even um, death. So um, I just think Biden, again, he's made a lot of promises and, and um, the people who turned out to vote for him deserve for him to, um, to at least try to, to uh, make good on those promises. All right, Alan, I want to single you out because in choosing your top priorities for a Biden administration and two things you mentioned specifically, student debt relief and infrastructure, it seemed like you focused more on the possibility of bipartisan action. And so I'd like for you to explain why you think there's uh, your optimistic case, I guess, for why you think there's at least some chance for meaningful legislation in these areas. Yeah, so at least for student debt, I doubt it'll be legislatively achieved because I don't foresee the Republican establishment pushing that forward. But apparently Biden can like enact an executive order to forgive student debt, and it's broadly supported, even on the right. I can't. Yes, 59% of the general public express support, including 53% of Republicans. So a lot of people are in favor of abolishing student debt. So this would be a popular executive order initiative. And as for infrastructure, I mean, the Republicans were calling for it. Donald Trump was calling for it during his presidency, and the Democrats have always talked about it. I feel like this is legislation he can get through. And with both of these initiatives, they're things that are relatively uncontroversial. They'll make him look popular. They'll make both parties look popular for the midterms. I think it's just something we can all agree on. And it's like, why not? Well, it would certainly be nice if there were things that we could all agree on, though. It seems like a lot of folks seem to think that it's going to be difficult to agree on much of anything. And, and let's let's consider, let's move on and consider that. And there's an argument that both parties are just going to be looking to 2022, those midterm elections. And so with the balance being so close, first off, how would you say that you, what would you say the chances are of Democrats uh, holding the House and their, their slim margin that they have now and actually gaining a few seats, winning the Senate in 2022, because, of course, as it stands now, Joe Biden will be the first pre- the first Democratic president to come into office uh, in well, in any of our lifetimes to not have that majority working for him. And so what do you think? Do the Democrats have a better better shot of things in, say, the second half of a Biden term with picking up seats in the House and Senate in 2022? Doc? Unless he does a absolutely wonderful job, 2022 is going to be a disaster for the Democrats. Uh, I just can't imagine that man or their party doing anything in the next two years that doesn't do anything other than alienate most people. Uh, As I keep saying, he's a globalist, and he will sell the United States out for a buck and a half and a pat on the back. And he, he... if he doesn't do something that's almost could be deified when 2020 rolls around, he's going to lose both the Senate and Congress. All right. Uh, let's see, Noah. 
So with Alan's earlier comments, I actually kind of, I, I never really even thought about infrastructure and student debt forgiveness. I was focused on other issues, but I could totally see that actually potentially happening and potentially getting Biden um, some, um, making him a little bit more likable by the general public. And so if that actually happens, I could potentially see them keeping control of the House and maybe making, I don't know if they'll ever flip the Senate to potentially Democrats. I know it has happened before, but I mean, like, I think the Senate is a fairly gridlocked. I mean, like most, it's very rarely that Senate seats flip so much because they're very often like, I mean, like, as we saw this time, we all thought that Susan Collins was going to lose her spot in Maine. We all thought all these people were going to lose their spots. And it only turned out that three people just changed. And so, I mean, like, is, there's that potential again. But I think potentially that there is the potential for the Senate to flip. But if not, I think we might start seeing partisan stuff like Alan was saying. I mean, like, if we can start doing these uncontroversial things, I think we will potentially see like a, just maybe the same numbers happening again. And it, it seems it seems just like a few minutes ago to someone who's old like me. But back when Barack Obama uh, uh, became president, he actually had 60 Democratic senators, which seems like I'm sure to a lot of Democrats, like a completely unbelievable, unimaginative number or unimaginable number. But that was only back in 2009 in that Congress. Olivia. Um, so historically, since like the 40s, I want to say, um, with a few exceptions, we've seen that the party of the uh, of the president tends to lose seats. Um, and a lot of that is because, well, part of it is, is checks and balances and people want to vote in favor of checks and balances because they don't want to see um, one party having, you know, rule over the executive and the entire legislative branch um, because that allows for, you know, sweeping reform and not a lot of uh, accountability. Um, but I think that's actually going to be heightened in 2022 um, because, and I think that the Democrats may lose the house and certainly won't flip the Senate um, because like I've said in previous episodes and, and what I was saying about Georgia is there are still going to be a lot of Republicans who were diehard Trump supporters and who are angry that Biden has won. And there's going to be a lot of campaigning on the right, um, again, using that fear mongering about, you know, how how awful the situation in the United States would be and, and how all of these extreme policies that Biden would be able to get passed and that the Democrats could get passed if they get control of the Senate and keep the House. Um, and again, fear is is an excellent motivator to vote. So, um, you know, historically speaking, the Democrats should lose seats, um, most likely in the Senate and the House. But I just I think um, that's that's definitely going to be um, exacerbated by the polarization that we've seen, especially under Trump and the fact that, you know, Trump's Trump is still going to have an influence. I think he's still going to have an influence on his supporters, even in 2022. Um, and the Republican Party is, I, I think, still going to be feeling kind of vengeful toward the Democratic or the Democratic Party and um, definitely turn out to vote and make sure that the de Democrats don't get control of uh, the Senate or keep control of the House. So it sounds an awful lot like there's a pretty strong consensus that we're going to have 
massive gridlock and uh, divided government for the next four years, probably. So let's jump ahead, maybe even a little bit more, and talk about, well, uh, the age issue, I guess you could call it. Joe Biden will be 78 years old when he's inaugurated, and that will make him the oldest person to ever serve as president of the United States. And if Donald Trump chooses to run in 2024 and wins, he would be 79 when sworn in again as president. So pretty old there. And how much of a consideration should this be looking forward if, let's say, for instance, as is completely, you know, potentially possible that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are the nominees of their respective parties? How concerned should people be about that? Uh, Let's start with Faith. Well, I think for like the age concern, I think a lot more people are going to be concerned about Biden rather than being concerned about Trump. Um, especially because I think more for, although they're really not that far apart, um, Biden's age or his appearance of looking older seemed to come up a lot more this debate um, this time around, especially a big narrative pushed by Donald Trump. Especially, too, Biden has kind of considered himself more as a transition candidate. And I think a lot of people have also kind of considered Biden as maybe like, I think Alan even said in one episode, like this unspoken narrative that Biden's kind of a one-time um, presidential candidate if he's elected and now he is elected um especially too when you look at the republican party there's no really young hotshot republican that's coming through and so i think even people like lindsey graham have kind of talked to the president about running again in 2024 so i think a lot of people like trump still has very big support in his core base where biden again we saw where there was that big enthusiasm gap this time around and the um, democrats are going to have a very young energetic kamala harris so like i think age would definitely play a bigger factor with Biden, especially who's already been known to misspeak and then how old he would be again in four years. And we all know how much the presidency ages one person, especially a person who would be 82 years old. So I think that definitely the age consideration would be more for Biden, but it also should be a consideration for Trump because he's not going to be that much younger than Biden. But I think a big um, thing the Republicans are going to be able to look over. Doc. You know, there's an age restriction on, what is it, you have to be 35 to run for president? Uh, There really ought to be an age restriction on the other end. Uh, Things happen to your, I'll use myself as an example, I'm 82. Up until a year ago, no sweat. I could have done anything these guys do. Bingo. I got nailed with uh, some weird problem. And at this point, I I admit I wouldn't have the stamina to do it. A year ago, no problem. Now, no, I, I, couldn't, I could not do it. And I just think there, there really ought to be an age limit because unless you get some really great vice presidential candidate uh, that can take your place, uh, you ought to really, really think about that age thing. And I don't know how many times I could tell you I've seen this cartoon of Kamala pushing Biden in a wheelchair and then dumping him off a cliff. <laughs> that. That is the uh, you know I'm I'm willing to bet I'm willing to bet everybody here a buck that Biden will not finish out this four year term. 
All right. Uh, well, we'll, see. we'll definitely have to see about that. Uh, let's see. Next, I think, let's go to Olivia. So um, the cognitive ability and the decline of someone's cognitive ability as they get older is fact, and that's definitely a concern. Um, but I think an even bigger concern is that like my generation and um, generations younger than me and, and even a little bit older than I am um, deserve a candidate who is able to better sympathize and um, empathize with us and our experiences. And um, the education that like I, for example, am receiving today in 2020 in college is it has to be very, very different and more updated um, than the education that somebody like, um, and you know, I voted for Joe Biden, I support Joe Biden, but someone like Joe Biden received. Um, and even Bernie Sanders, and you know, I don't fault Bernie Sanders because he's an example. He and people like John Lewis are examples of people who were, um, who were protesting um, for, you know, for racial equality back, you know, during the civil rights movement. Um, however, people like, Bernie Sanders and like Joe Biden um, were literally growing up and receiving their education, their high school and their college education um, during times of segregation and during the civil rights movement. So just and, and even then, you know, they were growing up when women were not really that involved in the workforce. So, um, you know, times have just changed so much since these people were young and since they were being educated. And I just think, you know, and, and even there's the concern about accountability, because if when you're somebody like Joe Biden, um, the policies that you enact regarding, you know, whether whether it's a Republican candidate who says that climate change is not real and doesn't want to pass policy on climate change. Well, I mean, why would they? Because they're not going to live to see the lasting impact of it, whereas my generation is. So I just think, you know, even besides the cognitive ability um, concern, we deserve younger candidates who are more in touch with today's issues and with more progressive and modern issues um, that are going to impact my generation going forward because we still have decades of life left and we're going to see the lasting long-term implications of policy that's passed. So that's why I think that, um, you know, whether there's a, a maximum age limit or even just an encouragement of younger candidates running and an acceptance of younger candidates running rather than saying that, like, oh, they don't have enough experience. They actually do. They just have more modern experience and updated experience. All right. Alan. I agree. The fact that we are still nominating much older candidates is probably problematic. But as our history has shown, we will likely continue to do it. Um, they nominated William Henry Harrison, one of our presidents, the first big president. He died, I think, 30 days into office, the first president to do so. There was discussion on if Ronald Reagan was struggling with um, memory issues towards the latter half of his second term. I mean, there was, bit, there was talk during the primary, during the general, about Biden's cognitive abilities. I think at the end of the day... People are going to still vote for these candidates despite their age because of political polarization, because we're in an environment now where it's too dangerous to vote for the other candidates. So if one party puts up a candidate that you're supposed to support and they're super old, are you going to vote for the other party's candidate? Probably not. Doc. I will say it again. John Kennedy was the last great Democrat. And I voted for him. And if he was running again, I'd vote for him again. All right. Uh, so let's 
pull back even further and sort of try to look at this entire election experience. Now, most everyone here in this group, it's it's either your, at least as an adult, your first or second election. Now, I've, I've been through nine of these presidential elections, Doc. If my math is right, you've been through around 16 of them. So I, I thought we could maybe close today by talking a little bit about what this election experience has taught you about American politics, at least as it exists in 2021, and whether or not you're more or less optimistic about the future, having gone through this election experience, especially in a time of COVID. Let's start with Noah. Um, so as I wrote in my paper, I think this is the first time since having Trump in office that I'm, again, proud to say I'm an American. And the reason being is like, I know everybody's going to be like, well, you didn't even give him a chance. I actually do remember saying like sitting down because I just turned 18 after his election and sitting down. Okay. It's like, let's give him a fair chance. Let's see what he does in office. And I, I think it was like maybe two weeks in, I was already like upset with what he was doing. I think by then he's already um, was not allowing trans people into the military. And so I remember I was like, okay, this is actually horrifying and terrifying to me to see that somebody is just okay with taking human rights away from people. And so honestly, when Joe Biden was elected, I actually like, it was really funny. I was on my phone and my mom was actually in our living room and she started to scream. And so one, I panic because I'm like, why is my mom just screaming? And two, she's like, Noah, Biden won. And so we run to our TV to turn it on because we were um, doing that. And I remember just bursting into tears. And the reason being was because I was like, maybe I can actually ha- return to normalcy. That's what I would like to see with this presidency is it's like the potential for us to not all hate each other would be lovely. I mean, like I have like people like I have like unfriended people because of the blatantly just terrible things they have said about people people i remember like being totally upset with somebody's comments about people so it's like for me with this election it gave me hope again and so it's kind of like the obama i think it was obama's campaign slogan in 2008 that was like hope and so it's like i kind of feel like i'm back in that hope state it's like maybe we can actually start making strides to making this a better country again instead of dividing let's start to be right and i think by any chance that there is no gridlock, which I really doubt there is, I think this is the chance to start uniting us again and getting away from this polarization. Okay. Faith. Yeah, I um I think the biggest thing that I learned from this election is just like how like polarized we are, just how many different things are out there. But I think I actually really like Noah's comment. I think I'm gonna change. I I think that was really nice. I think I maybe I am a little more optimistic now. Um, but like also too, something that made me optimistic was there was a lot of firsts in this election, especially in terms of diversity. Um, I know, um, Col- I think it was Ms- actually, sorry, not Colorado, Missouri, actually elected their first black congresswoman in Cori Bush, and we have the first female vice president. And I know this isn't political, but the Miami Marlins actually just put up their first female general manager. And again, that's not political, but I just thought it was an exciting first. It was a lot of exciting first for diversity. It was a lot of exciting um, first for women. So I think the fact that maybe that people are becoming more accepting of differences, maybe will actually make things more optimistic. Alan. I'm very much less optimistic than I was <laughs> four years ago. I, I feel as though during, especially around this election, and that could just be election season forever, but there has begun to be a 
tepid, not endorsement, but they don't, they no longer condone political violence if it's advantageous to them in the way that they used to. I think we see that somewhat on the left and on the right. And if that's a trend that continues forward because of the increasing polarization, that is seriously problematic. Olivia. So I'm, I'm torn because what gives me hope for the future is that, um, as Faith was saying, we have the first ever um, female or I, black and Asian daughter of immigrants, female vice president, um, which is amazing. And that's, you know, that will is a, a historical move toward progress. Um, and, and we also have this move, this Black Lives Matter movement that is the largest civil rights movement um, that this country has seen. And it's spread into all 50 states. And we have seen, um, which is, you know, a major difference from between now and the 60s is that we've, we have so many, such a diverse group of people protesting. It's not just people of color protesting for their rights. It's, it's white people who are saying, yes, I acknowledge my privilege, but I'm, I'm going to fight for the people who are, who are being oppressed. Um, and that gives me hope. And my generation and the fact that so many young people went out and voted to make sure that Trump did not get another four years gives me hope. And people like Stacey Abrams, who are doing everything in their power and proving that we can fight voter suppression efforts um, and come out on top, um, give me hope. However, the fact that um, that over the last four years, we've seen Trump um, combat democracy um, and in both firing anybody who tries to hold him accountable and in joking that. um, And and I know that it's not constitutional that you can't run for a third term, but it is a precedent. And, you know, Trump has joked at multiple uh, rallies that he would run for a third term. and even now we've seen that he is refusing to concede. And he said that before the election that um, he never he never promised to a peaceful transition of power. He never promised that he would concede if he lost. And um, the fact that so many people like we saw the million, whatever it was called, million MAGA march or whatever um, of people who are supporting his refusal to concede um, to Biden in this election. I just I guess the amount of people who turned out and voted for Trump for a second term after the disastrous effects of his first term. Um, and the fact that we have kind of seen democracy be threatened um, over and over again under Trump and the Trump administration, even now, again, like I said, and the fact that he's still saying that he won the election and that he's going to overturn the results, I guess um, what I've learned more than anything is that democracy is not just a given. Like I grew up thinking like we're always going to have a democratic government and, and you know, we're never going to have to live under autocratic rule. And um, that's not necessarily true. I mean, things could always change if you have the right candidate and a vulnerable uh, group of supporters, I guess. I don't know. I'm feeling pretty pessimistic, too. There's a lot of reasons to be hopeful, but this this election and Trump's presidency really taught me not to take for granted that the United States will always have a democratic government because that is not necessarily true. Okay. Doc, you've probably, oh, you have lived through more of, uh, more of American history than any of us here in this group. So what are your thoughts with your uh, definitely greater lived historical perspective on this? I was just thinking, I mentioned uh, Kennedy before, and I voted for Kennedy. I think I was just a little past being 21. And I worked for a major corporation in downtown Cincinnati. 
And you would not believe how many of the middle managers and upper management people came to work the day after that election with a black armband on. Uh, It was rather interesting. I was rather surprised, to tell you the truth. And as I said, I voted for Kennedy. I thought he was great. I still think he was great. He's the kind of human being that ought to be running this country. But no, I mean, things haven't changed that much. Uh, At these, of course, they weren't there. It wasn't violent. Of course, when Johnson did the Civil Rights Act, that that got really hairy. Uh, but in all honesty, I've never seen things going on like they are right now with the march in Washington and people, uh, these guys trying to set the marchers on fire. Uh, The Antifa, I think it was out in Washington, that followed a cop home and tried to burn his house down. I mean, I, as much as there was animosity, there was never people killing one another. You mentioned Black Lives Matter. The only time they do anything is when A cop kills a black person. I mean, if you looked at the numbers from Chicago last weekend, 22 people shot, one killed, all black on black, and Black Lives Matter doesn't say a thing. So I think that organization is is just a moneymaker. Let's get donations and go burn stuff down. Okay. well, you know, I should I should point out it's one thing that we do have today that we didn't have back in those earlier turbulent times was we have a, a pretty intense social media. And even back in the 1970s, when, you know, practically there was uh, literally just about a bombing per day, there wasn't uh, Facebook and Twitter and so forth to sort of promote the sort of hatred and division that we're seeing. But let's hope that our optimistic v- visions of the future all actually come true, or at least to a certain extent, and we shall find out but that's it for today's episode and we are off next week but we'll be back with our final episode in this election 2020 series on wednesday december 2nd and as always if you have a question or comment we would love to hear from you just send us an email at mail at politicsguys.com or post a comment in the episode link that we'll put up on our facebook page facebook.com slash politicsguys page and if in addition to this series and the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you'd like a third full-length Politics Guys episode every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions as well as other stuff, various levels, and to get all the details and become a supporter, just check us out at patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter but you'd like all of our content, just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up with full access to everything. Also, we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share your share episodes on social media. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski.
Again, our final episode in this Election 2020 series will drop on Wednesday, December 2nd, and we hope you'll join us for it.